All good. So, hello everyone. My name's Tom and I'm a first year studying law and psychology. And as Alice said before, today's Bible reading is in the pamphlets you got on the way in. And it's Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and said, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you is, who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who, are not your, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name is Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. The kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him.
Thanks, Tom. Uh, you'll find an outline of where we're going, uh, opposite where it's print- the text is printed. So what does God require of us? He created us, he sustains us, he's sort of like the complete parent. Uh, you'd expect him to expect something of us, wouldn't you? Some sort of minimum requirement of the way we behave and what we are. But last week we saw a striking verse in chapter 15 where we hear that God believed Abraham, or Abram as he was at that point, and credited it to him as righteousness. In a sense, God says, that's enough for me. I've made promises to you. I've said this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make of you a great nation. See the stars of the heavens? That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham made the simple choice simply to believe what God said. And God said, that's enough. For me, I'm good with that. You're now good with me. It seems like that is all that God requires. Really? Isn't that enough? I mean, the, 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 just the, the normal human, the average person at UWA, I presume, would say, that's not enough. Surely you have to be better than just believe. Like what? Sure, well, surely you've got to try hard to be good. Try hard to do the right thing, which sounds sort of reasonable. But it immediately raises the question, how hard do you have to try? Well, what's the pass mark? If you've got to try hard, and we all realise that we sometimes do and we sometimes don't, how much do you have to try for it to be okay? And so I guess for most people, we either run in one of two directions. Either we think somehow our good needs to outweigh our bad. The good things I do somehow needs to be more than outweigh what, what, what the bad stuff I do. Which sort of sounds reasonable till you start to think about how you'd actually apply that. Like if I've stolen a bit of software... How many little old ladies do I have to help across the street to make up for stolen software? Like, how how do you do the calculations? Who does the calculations? How on earth could that ever work? Besides which, if I've stolen software, I've stolen software. Our justice system rightly says, well, we can't sort of just pretend you didn't do that because you did some nice things. If you've murdered somebody, a bit of community service, even 10 years community service, can't make up for murdering somebody. And so, well, maybe God does a different way. Maybe God marks on a curve. That's how the uni works, isn't it? And so the key is you've got to be better than 50% of the rest of the people. And that sounds pretty attractive, doesn't it? I mean, just turn to the person to your right. Think you're better than them? Well, if not, turn to the person on your left. (laughs) Okay, so surely one of those you can be better than, can't you? And, of course, we hope that God will scale the mark so that, well, more than 50% pass. But, but you know what it's like at uni. You get 49% and you hope the uni will give you a concessional pass because failure and passing is quite a, a straight line, isn't it? It's a binary thing. And it, it just seems so unfair that half a percent might put you on the other side and, and as if God would do that somehow, just half a percent of how much good you've done or how many people you're better, better than will somehow satisfy him or unsatisfy him, as if that will determine your destiny. It sounds a stupid system when you start to think about it, doesn't it? Ridiculous system. But what what does God require of us? Well, in God's relationship with Abram, we start to see something of that requirement as we track the relationship. Just to recap, 
Go back to Genesis 12. This is, this is where the relationship with God starts. If you've been with us a couple of weeks, this will be familiar territory. God begins the relationship by speaking to Abram. And what he speaks is not a list of requirements. Abram, this is what you must do, but a list of promises. I promise to give you a land. I promise to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you in all these ways. Uh, and through you, I'll bless all the peoples of the world. And notice it's unconditional. God doesn't say, if you do this, I'll bless you. God just says, I will. He commits himself to blessing Abram. And in blessing him, he reveals a strategy, a plan, a a, a plan to reverse the curse of sin and evil that's ravishing our world, like a virus ravishes uh, the citizens of the world. And in the end, it's going to incorporate all the peoples of the earth. People from the Middle East and the Americas, uh, from uh, subcontinental people, people of dark skin and light skin and everything in between. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through this plan, this strategy. And these are words that kickstart a new life, a new destiny for Abram and a new hope for the whole world. God is effectively saying, I've got this. I'm going to fix this. And then last week we came to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God reaffirms the promises he'd made in chapter 12. <laughs> but we discover, as we, any thoughtful person would work out, the promises depend on Abram having children. He's got to have at least one. But in Genesis 15, he's got no kids whatsoever. That is, the promises are going nowhere. And God says to Abram, you will have a son. And therefore, descendants, as many of the star, as the stars. And Abraham looked at his own body. He was about 85 at that point. Sarah, his wife, is about 75. And I presume he says, it's not going to happen. But God says, it will happen. And Abraham made this choice to believe God, to take God at his word. He weighed them up. And he took God at his word and we're told that God justified him. God considered him righteous. He'd done all that God required at that point. And God goes out of his way to show Abram that he really means his promises. He cuts a covenant with him. He makes a covenant. If you remember the story, uh, Abram has to cut some animals in half and create this passageway. And God walks down the passageway as if he's signing on the dotted line with his own life, his own blood. I will do this. I've got it. And a covenant is this solemn, serious, binding commitment, uh, like a contract, a legal contract. Except, interestingly, only God signs because God is the only one making a commitment. This is no gentleman's agreement, just with a shake of a hand. God signs this one-sided covenant. Chapter 16, which we've skipped over, Abram and Sarai decide to give God a little bit of a helping hand to fulfil his promises. And so they use Hagar, who's Sarai's um, servant, as a surrogate mother so that Abram and Sarai can sort of have a son that is their son but isn't their son. But it doesn't go well. Instead of bringing blessing, it brings curse onto the family. It creates all these uh, jealousies and and dynamics. Uh, Ishmael's born as that son, but he's not a blessing at all. And so we come to chapter 17, where God gives this covenant again. And it's sort of strange in Genesis 17, because God speaks as if there isn't a covenant yet. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to confirm my covenant with you. 
And you might think, hold on a minute, <laughs> isn't there one already? Remember those animals that God walked down the middle of? Have you, have you gotten that God? Are you going senile? Why are you repeating yourself? Well, let's take a closer look and see why God repeats himself. We're told in verse 1 that Abram is 99 years old, which makes Sarai, his wife, about 90. 13 years after Ishmael's been born, about 15 years after God spoke to Abram the last time. It's quite a long time, isn't it? 15 years. For most of you, that's almost a lifetime, isn't it? We sometimes get the impression that God was always popping into the lives of the patriarchs and and telling them things every day, but 15 years between for Abram. And we're told he's old, like old, old. With every passing month, with every passing year, I presume Abram and Sarai are thinking, well, it's got to be Ishmael, isn't it? That's the only way what God has promised is ever going to come about. It's, it, Ishmael must be the son. And then one day, God shows up. And one of the interesting things about chapter 17 is God does pretty much all the talking. It just keeps saying, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said again in almost every paragraph. And as the God speaks, it's always all about what he will do. I will make a covenant. I will make I will establish my covenant. I will bless. It's my covenant that I'm going to give you. It's all about what God is going to do. Although there are a couple of mentions of what God requires of Abram, which come up in verse 2 and verse 9, and we'll come back to those. But as I said, as you read this chapter, the first impression is God is simply repeating himself. He's just saying exactly what he said last time. It's the same old, same old. I'm going to give you lots of offspring, lots of descendants. I'm going to give them the land. Uh, And and I'm going to have a relationship with them, as if God has not changed track at all, which is good in one sense, isn't it? If God is changing track, then what can you trust about God? No, he hasn't changed track. But the difficulty is at this stage, nothing has actually happened. It's all just words. Have Abraham and Sarai got got a son? Well, sort of, but not really. Have they got any of the land? Not one square centimetre of that land. It's as if nothing has happened yet and God just keeps turning up and speaking. It's all talk, it's all promises, there's no delivery, which must have been embarrassing for Abram. Remember we saw last time, Abram means exalted father. You you meet him at a party, party. hi, I'm Tim. He says, oh, my name's exalted father. Oh, how many kids have you got? None. Zilch. (laughs) Bit of a joke, isn't it? This chapter, though, God changes his name to father of many. Now, you meet Abram 15 years later. Hey, Abram, I remember you, exalted father. He says, no, don't don't call me exalted father anymore. Call me father of many. Oh, how many kids you got now? None. Like, it's a joke, isn't it? And every day it would have reminded Abram that God had made these promises, but nothing had happened yet. Nothing had changed. Well, let's look a little bit more closely at the promises. Because God's promises are to multiply and they get more specific. They expand to something bigger and they come with more clarity. So if you remember these promises, God promised back in chapter 12, repeated in 15, he would make him a nation. Now it becomes he will be the father of many nations. Not just one nation, not just one great nation, but many great nations. And not just of nations, but even of kings. He's going to be royalty. Verse 6, we're told, 
God says that you will be very, very fruitful. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of descendants. And kings will come from you. I don't know whether that reminds you of anywhere in the Bible. Where does God speak to humanity and say, be fruitful and rule? It's back in Genesis. See, God's original plans are on track through Abram. And the land is now specified as the land of Canaan, uh, with all its territory and borders. This is getting bigger and more specific. And in verse 7, God says that he's going to make a covenant. um, Sorry, establish a covenant which is an everlasting covenant. Previously, God had cut a covenant. He'd he'd made it. Now he's going to establish a covenant. That is, to establish a covenant is to make its conditions real. Now, if you sign a, a, a contract to borrow money from the bank, well, you've got a contract. But until the money is in your account, the contract hasn't been established. And God is saying, I'm going to establish these, these promises. There's actually going to be action soon. He's going to make it real and it's going to be everlasting, not just with Abram, but with generation after generation. Its scope is long, everlasting till the end of time and beyond. And relationship. Relationship is now spelled out. He says in verse seven uh, that um, uh, for you and your descendants after you, generations to come, to be your God And the God of your descendants after you. To be the God of them. To be their God. It's talking about a personal close bond. So imagine you're an Eagles fan. And you're a bit on the quiet. You watch them occasionally. You might even go to one game. If you don't like the Eagles, the Dockers. Imagine that. And, and, well, you're sort of part of them. You you support them. But imagine the whole team turns turns up at your door one day. And they say to you, we are your team. Boy, that would change things, wouldn't it? Suddenly you're on the inside. You're part of them. And that's what God turns up and says to Abram. I am your God. I will be your God and the God of your descendants. Suddenly it, 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 there's, a, there's a commitment. There's a closeness. There's a bond between them. And in verses 15 and 16, God gets more specific about this child. As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I'll bless her and will surely give uh, you a son by her. And I'll bless her so that she'll be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now, Abram at that point falls down laughing. Like he falls off his chair. Because he knows that can't happen. That's ridiculous, God. And you see in verse 18, he still thinks that it's going to happen through Ishmael. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And then God gets very, very specific. Yes, he will, but your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son. She'll get pregnant. She will give birth to a son. And you're to call his name Isaac. And Isaac means laughter. It's a great name, isn't it, for a son who comes when you've laughed at the prospect. And I presume every time Abraham, you know, cuddle little Isaac, Every time he put him to sleep, every time he said the name, called out, Isaac, come, come here, it would have reminded him that he laughed at the promise of God, at this outrageous promise that he and Sarah would have a baby at 190. Can you imagine that happening? And in his own disbelief, the power and the faithfulness of God is shown. 
See, as you read this story, it's sort of like God keeps delaying the birth of this child way, way beyond what is humanly possible. Years and years, decades after something that is humanly thinkable. (laughs) Their age, 100, 90. And Sarah's been infertile all her life. So when this baby is born, there is no doubt, there can be no doubt, that this is God's doing. This is the fulfilment of God's promise. This is the power of God at work. You see, if Isaac had been born when Abraham and Sarah were, were, were 30 and then she had lots of kids after them and she was actually quite fertile, then Isaac would be nothing special. And maybe you'd sit back and think, oh, it's not really God doing anything. It's all just normal. There's no significance whatsoever. There's, there's no plan here. This is just normal life, isn't it? But when it happens at 100, when it happens at 90, when God stretches and stretches the time so that when it happens, you know this is God. It's not a coincidence, but purposeful, significant. Now, for Abram and Sarah, the waiting must have been agony and the waiting must have generated doubts and tensions. But after, the waiting brought certainty and wonder so that they could be confident that this was the plan of Almighty God and that his plans for the future would come about as well, just as the birth of this son came about. Have you ever thought about Jesus? He's born of a virgin. Have you ever heard of such a thing? (laughs) I assume if you hear of it, somebody claiming it, you'd say, no, it doesn't happen. There must be another explanation. But there wasn't. You know, if being born of a 90-year-old infertile woman is a surprise, then being born of a virgin is a huge surprise, isn't it? So that we know this is God. This is his plan and purpose. This is God fulfilling what he set in motion right back with Abraham. And the people at the time of Jesus, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. They assumed God would do this much before Jesus actually came. You might know the story of old Simeon who goes to the temple every day, hoping to see the salvation of God appear in the temple. Every day. And and he's old. He's so old he thinks he's going to die the next day. And finally he meets Jesus. And he says, phew. The waiting is over. The waiting is like that, isn't it? It's, it's difficult. And yet it brings certainty when what you're waiting for is delivered. And so we see that these, these words of God, these promises of God, God speaking again and again, repeating himself over and over again, actually have a purpose. Without God saying that, this is what I'm going to do. Without him building the tension of it not happening And thinking it can't happen, then we miss the significance. We don't get the surety when it does happen. This is God. This is unmistakable God. That was true for Abram and and Sarah when, when Isaac is born and every day of his life. And it's true for us because Jesus has come. He's God's plan. And as those waited... If we'd been part of humanity back in the early, uh, before AD, in the BCs, we would have been waiting and waiting and getting frustrated and having lots of doubts. But once it happens, once Jesus comes, we know that this is God. And God's words to us really matter. They help us so much. But the new idea in this passage is what God specifies of what he requires of Abram. 
And we see in the passage that there are two things God requires of Abram. The first one in verse 1 is to walk before me and be blameless. To walk before me, be blameless. The second one's verse 9, that, that little paragraph, which is about circumcision. So we want to explore these a little bit. God says, I want you to walk before me. It's sort of an evocative picture, isn't it? Because it's not as if God actually literally walks around Palestine and Abram's supposed to trot in his footsteps. It's a picture of a relationship in which every step Abraham takes, he's looking to God to provide for him, to protect him. And every day he walks this, this planet, he's accompanied by God. That is, it's a way of talking about a life of faith, of trust. Not running and hiding from God, but living openly with God. Day by day by day. And be blameless, which clearly points to a life of, of goodness. Now, at this point, Abraham actually has no laws from God. All he has is an intuitive knowledge of what, uh, what is good and what a good, faithful God would require. Blameless, that, that's a pretty high bar, isn't it? But note, there's, there's no details. It's more about an orientation of life. Abram, walk before me and seek to live a good life, a life of blamelessness. The second requirement is to keep his covenant by circumcision. Now, verse 9, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and all your descendants after you. This is my covenant with you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you must be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, um, sorry. Um, circumcision is the cutting off, it's a little surgical procedure, cutting off the loose foreskin on a male penis. No demos, no pictures. You can work it out. And God explains what it's about. Uh, verse 11, it's a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a sign, it's a, it's a symbol that God is making a covenant with Abram and with all his descendants. Now, we have lots of signs like that. I guess the most obvious one is a wedding ring. Now, I'm wearing a wedding ring. I'm married to Rosemary. Where's Rosemary? She's here somewhere. There she is. <laughs> yeah, I lost that one, but go with me for a minute. <laughs> Still works. Okay. Now, I wear this as a symbol of my marriage to Rosemary. But it's not my marriage, is it? It's just a symbol. It points to it. It helps with it. But it doesn't actually make up the marriage. It's a, it's a signpost uh, to a marriage, to a reality. And that's what God says circumcision is. It's a signpost of the covenant that God makes between himself and Abram and between himself and Abraham's descendants. But the very nature of circumcision tells us some things about it. Because, see, circumcision is indelible and perpetual. As he says in verse 13, it's in your flesh. It's sort of like a tattoo. Once it's happened, you can't undo it. Now, there were people in the first century, Jews, who tried to undo it, and it just made the whole thing worse. Mutilated themselves trying to undo circumcision, because it's not meant to be undone. It's a lifelong thing that once it's happened, that is you. And it's happened for each individual, therefore, a symbol for the rest of their lives and each generation. So it's a perpetual symbol, just like God's promises are about everlasting. They have no end. They have no use by date. So the sign doesn't either. And it's made with all males at eight days old. 
This sort of age, that's an eight-year-old baby. Now, what does that tell you? Well, it's interesting to think about the cultures of the day because in the cultures of the day, circumcision was a known thing in some of them. And it was normally used as a coming-of-age ceremony. When you turn from being a kid to an adult, when you take on the responsibilities of being a real person, when you become part of the tribe, in a sense, by your own choice, you get circumcised. But God uses it very differently. (laughs) He doesn't wait till people are ready to make their own decision to take it on for themselves. He does it, or they're to do it, when the baby is only eight days old. Because it's a sign, not of our commitment to God, but of God's commitment to us, God's covenant promises. And it shows us that this has something to do with a corporate thing, families having an identity as God's people, not simply an individual decision. And it's not just the offspring of Abraham who are to take this sign on. Anybody else in the household is. This is an inclusive, foreigners, even slaves, are to be included in this to be the covenant people of God. And thirdly, it's binary. That's the thing about circumcision. You either are or you aren't. Now, we won't have a show of hands, but you can't be half circumcised. You can't be circumcised one day and not circumcised the next and then get circumcised again. It's it's binary. It only works. It's a zero or a one. You either are or you aren't. But what is it a sign of? (laughs) It is cutting off a bit of skin. What does that actually mean? Like... A ring is used as a symbol of marriage, and there's various explanations, but there's something about a ring is unending. You can't find an end to it, and so marriage is meant to be sort of unending love. Now, it's a bit sentimental, romantic, but go with it for a minute. The symbol has something to do, the picture tells you something about what it's picturing. But what does circumcision picture? What's the idea behind it? Yeah, there's all sorts of possibilities. But notice in this passage, God doesn't say. He, it's his invention. He says, that's the symbol of my covenant. But he doesn't explain what it is about the covenant that it's meant to symbolise. What, what, what picture are we meant to have in our mind as we think about circumcision? Well, probably not the one in your mind. We need to leave that for a minute because the New Testament helps us. But I want to step back for a second. What did God require of Abraham? What did God require of his descendants? Well, (laughs) circumcision. And what is circumcision? Circumcision is saying, I will trust the promises of God. I will be one of God's people. It speaks of loyalty to God, but it speaks of intention, not performance. To walk before God, to be blameless before God, is not about a mark, a percentage, I've got 65%, but orientation living my life openly with God, before God, as one of his people. And so what's required is a binary sort of thing. It's like marriage. So if you ask me, am I married? I've got a very clear answer for you. Yes, I am. If you ask me, am I a perfect marriage spouse? Have I kept all the promises I made when I got married? (laughs) Yeah, the testimony is there. Does that make me unmarried? (laughs) The testimony is there. What does it take then? Well, it takes an orientation. That's what I want to be, and it takes forgiveness for the way in which I let my spouse down. And if those two things are there, then I'm married. 
It's not about perfect performance. It's not about coming up to a certain standard. It's about orientation. And orientation is binary. And God says to Abram, this covenant is with you. What I require of you is an orientation. An orientation to live before me, to walk before me. An orientation to trust my promises. Yes, you'll have doubts. And doubts come out in this passage. He laughs at the promises of God. But overall, his intention is to live before God, trust his promises. And we know that because he took action. He circumcised himself at 99. That must have been pretty painful. And his kids, whatever age they were, Ishmael's 13 and any other babies around the household, all the males got circumcised. I presume they were sort of sore for a few days, but they recovered. But that was them saying, we are in. This binary thing you've created, this requirement that we be yours, yes, we're in. Even though their performance was not terrific. Well, in the last few minutes, I want to talk about God's new covenant. Circumcision was a sign of the old covenant that God had with Abraham, with Moses, with the Jews. But when we come to Jesus, Jesus talks about a new covenant. On the night before he dies, he says, drink this in remembrance of the new covenant. Oh, sorry, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He signs this new contract, this new covenant with humanity, with his own blood. Now, we need to be a little bit careful. When there's a new covenant, how do you think about the old one? doesn't mean God thought, oh, man, I've made a mistake. All those promises about everlasting, I, I, I really have stuffed up. I've got to start something new. I jettison that. No. The new covenant fulfills the old it supersedes the old. Just like if Ferrari bring out a new model. It doesn't mean the old models are, are, are useless and of no use, but now the new models have everything from the old and more beside. Except this is the ultimate model. It's the new and final covenant. The one that that old covenant looked forward to. And it has similar shape to the old covenant. It's based on the promises of God. Here's 2 Corinthians 3. God's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. There it is. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The old covenant was written in stone and cut into people's bodies. But the new covenant is written with the spirit because he makes us alive now. Genuinely alive. And that life now is a promise of resurrection life. Like God promised to bring life out of Sarah's dead body, her dead womb, and he did it, so God promises us that he will bring alive bodies from our dead bodies. Not just to temporary life, but to everlasting life. Life that will never end. Life of many nations incorporated. Life with a new home, a permanent home, that will never be ravaged by any uh, viruses. And a relationship with God that will be everlasting. God is not just predicting the future. He's making a covenant, a solemn promise with us, signed in the blood of Jesus. And so we live by faith that God will swallow up death in victorious resurrection life. Just like COVID is swallowing up people in death, God will swallow up death. And God keeps repeating it. He keeps reminding. And sometimes we get bored. Come on, God, haven't you got something new to say? The Apostle Peter says in his second letter, I write to remind you. I know you know it already, but I want to remind you. Because God repeating himself is really, really helpful for us. Don't get bored with it. 
And this new covenant is an internal reality, not an external in the body reality. See it in a number of places in Romans 2. Paul talks about real circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. What's the symbol of circumcision about? Cutting off something? Well, it's about circumcising our hearts, not the organs, but our, our life direction, our life bias. Because all of us know there are, there are aspects of our heart that need cutting off, don't we? There are things about us that we hate, that we know are wrong, we know are evil, they keep tripping us up. And God says, that is what I circumcise. That's the real circumcision. So in Colossians 2, Paul says to Christians, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This wasn't a scalpel coming out, a pair of scissors. This was made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, putting off that orientation to do evil. It's been cut off, snipped by the circumcision of Jesus, that is, by Jesus' death. When Christ died for me, he died to pay for and eliminate sin and all its effects. And when we trust his death, when we put ourselves into him, we are forgiven and the domination of evil is smashed. And God does that surgery in my heart, that circumcision of my heart, not with a scalpel, but with the Holy Spirit, breaking the power of evil. That controls all my actions. And Paul says to these Christians, you've got the best circumcision. It's real. It's not just a symbol. It's like having a real wife or a husband, not just having a ring. And in Ephesians 1, Paul picks up the idea of circumcision being the seal of God's covenant. And he says that what we have as the seal of God's covenant is the promised Holy Spirit who has already taken up residence in us. And so I want to help you understand and and, uh, encourage you to think about the binary nature of what God requires of us, how God relates to us. So if God is just a judge sitting up there, grading us on a curve, weighing up your good versus bad, then you know how to relate to him, don't you? You just try harder and try harder and try harder. Make sure you don't get your nose too dirty. But what if the relationship is founded on his promises to bless, on a covenant? Well, that makes it much more binary. You're either in or you're out. It's not a curve. It's not a grade. Either you accept the covenant or you don't. You you can't have it halfway. You can't oscillate between being in and out. And that's what John is on about in 1 John. The message of the gospel is that God is light and there's no darkness in him. You might think, oh, wow, that is scary. That must mean I've got to be perfectly pure. No, that's not the implication. Read it in verse 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. That if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, to walk in the light is to walk openly, transparently before God. Open both about my failings and my doubts but walking openly before God. That's what God requires. Desiring not to sin, but knowing I fail. And when I fail, the blood of Jesus purifies me. It's not about being perfect. It's not about being blameless in that sense. It's about living a life openly, walking with God day by day, as opposed to walking in the darkness, seeing some light in God and saying, I'm out of here. I just want to keep in the darkness. I don't want to be open. I don't want to apologise. I just want to pretend that I've somehow done enough, done all that God requires of me and retreat into darkness. 
Which is you? You're walking in the light? Not perfectly, not wonderfully, not morally upright, but in the light. God has promised forgiveness to you and to me. God has said, if you just come and, and, and own up, that's walking in the light with me. And Jesus purifies you from every sin. Is that where you're at? Because if you are, then you're in. It's not a matter of, oh, well, I've done enough today or I haven't. Are you walking in the light today? If you are, then you'll do it tomorrow, won't you? But if you're in darkness, I encourage you to change. God is light, wonderful, attractive, pure light. Come into the open. Admit who you are. Accept his promise. Trust his promise of forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thank you that you make these amazing promises and you deliver. We thank you for the promise of forgiveness and purification. Thank you for the work of your spirit who circumcises our hearts. Father, please give us that desire, that orientation to walk before you each day in the light. Amen.